Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 73. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And our double feature this week is Dressed to Kill, the Brian De Palma film from 1980, and Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper from 1982. Eddie, why, why'd you choose these two movies? And I just want to say before you answer, um, we're all dressed to kill tonight. We're all dressed to the nines and tuxedos, and we got our hair slicked back. But Eddie... Uh, Why'd you pick these two movies? Tell us. I just wanted to bring my boys a little New York City style Italian American treat. You know, it's about tradition. It's about <laughs> heritage. It's about this thing of ours, you know? True. This is, uh, you know, very Italian movies. Just by, you know, De Palma, I don't think there's any Italian. Maybe the cop's Italian. But in New York, you just have that Italian flavor. Well, I've been watching uh, Italian horror movies of the 60s and 70s this month, uh, you know, acquainting myself with the big classics that I had always held as blind spots. And we're, we're talking about Suspiria on the Patreon this week. Look out for that. But I, I wanted to bring it back stateside, wanted to bring back the De Palma rewatch that I'm slowly, you know, looking at some of the earlier films. Uh, I also rewatched Obsession this week, and I feel like this is a good melding of the sensibilities with Fulci uh, in his American setting period, you know, shooting a New York City slasher giallo kind of thing, and Brian De Palma making his film that feels the most like a giallo or just general Italian sleazebag film. Uh, Did you like this double feature, you guys? Oof, Marone. My God, I loved it. I mean, there's nothing more Italian-American than misogyny and transphobia. Um, but yeah, no, these uh, these were both uh, really great sleazy times. Um, yeah, I enjoyed them. You know, I, well, I these movies were very sexual. You know, you know, a lot. You know, a lot of it is about sex. You know, it's uh, it's good to see uh, hetero people cruising. A lot of hetero cruising <laughs> in both of those movies. I was looking at the Armand White review of uh, Dress to Kill, and he claimed it wasn't uh, anti-gay, anti-trans, because it, it does have that the, the joy of cruising scene. Yeah, seen in the museum, which I think of is course. a smart take. I mean, I, I don't know how much I agree with Armin White's uh, opinion on literally any film relating to like uh, whether or not it's transphobic uh, f- from the very uh, basis of his employer. But uh, out.com. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Sorry. You know what? You got me. You win. Libs Armin owns. wins. No, because we can't just like talk around the conversation about transphobia with True. this film. It's like the conversation about this film that a lot of people have. On the surface, it does appear as such, but uh, I think that he's getting at something deeper here at the types of stories that he's riffing on. You know, this is clearly a a riff on Psycho, you know, this is to Psycho what so many of his other films are to Vertigo. And they kind of take the most kind of regressive as well as just kind of sleazy and demented elements of it and tease those out to the forefront, you know, eluding the maybe uh, narrative precision that Hitchcock has for more of a set piece orientated feel. But I think in this one, it's just, I don't know. It's such a it's such like an outwardly mean and transgressive movie that I feel like it, it's not presenting any kind of moral ground for you to agree with at yeah, all. Yeah. And so I think to levy criticisms of the film itself being hateful uh, is kind of a weird thing to do, in my opinion. But I'm also obviously very sympathetic to this film because of fucking auteurism, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it wasn't well directed, I'd be like, yeah, this movie is evil. But uh <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think that's that's a good case because I think that's something that both of these movies share is just kind of throwing any sense of morality out the window when it comes to big city sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's just a machine that's going to happen on its own. So, you know, why be moralistic about it? Yeah, no, I think when you get down and dirty with the sleaze there, you're going to like experience a lot of hateful things. And I feel like it's a part of the atmosphere. You might get killed. You might get slashed. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know what uh, uh, Jean-Luc Godardo says? Representation is violence. 
But between that, uh, like, reliance on set pieces for the narrative rather than a more traditional Hollywood narrative uh, until the last very twisty 15 minutes or so, but uh, that as well as the very expressionistic uh, lighting and the fetishistic framing of the gloved hand holding the knife uh, and, you know, that really dreamlike feeling that's created in the set piece, this also feels... Yeah, more like uh, the Giallo I've been watching lately, almost more than Hitchcock in tone. You know, it's more just using the the Hitchcock as a starting point to, you know, unleash all of the depravity that he possibly can in 100 minutes. Sure, and I think a lot of Giallo takes a lot of influence from Hitchcock as well. So of course, yeah. There's an obvious connection there with... Uh... De Palma's movie here. Yeah, exactly. It's more of in conversation rather than just like a strict lineage of who influenced who. Mm-hmm. I feel like at this point you have a good melding of these sensibilities with, you know, this is the period when Fulci, uh, you know, one of the gods of Italian horror is working in New York making Zombie 2 and uh, the movie we're going to talk about in the next segment. So we open... Uh, on a very dreamlike fog from the hot shower that Angie Dickinson is taking. And right away, you know, oh, this is a film with that classic male gaze that we know and love. (laughs) You get a sweet set of cans, even a little pussy in this one, too. It's like right at the gate. My God. Brian De Palma said, you know, is the case against Mr. Skin. You know, you just watch his movies and you get it right away. No, but I think that this uh, scene is shot and cut in such a dreamlike kind of way that's so over the top in like the facial expressions that these actors are giving each other through this mirror uh, or not mirror through the glass that separates one from in the shower and uh, her husband uh, in the mirror, uh, you know, getting ready or whatever, and just creating more and more fog to completely distance themselves uh, before an intruder appears behind Angie Dickinson and uh, sexually assaults her like very briefly. And then you cut to, her having sex with her husband. Yeah, it's uh, her like it feels like it's her rape fantasy in it, which is like because it is cutting to her having this very detached sex with her husband, who she later confides to Michael Caine is very poor in bed. He's like, you should you should tell him. It's like, well, it'd be a little more amicable than <laughs> <No>. that. <laughs> but even like with De Palma's form here, the way he was shooting all of those very fetishistic close-ups and all these like waist-level medium shots of that opening fantasy uh, versus this over-the-top, very judgmental uh, shot of him just like joylessly fucking his wife who is just putting up with it as she later reveals and you know clearly the acting isn't great uh, <laughs> to a, to a point of course uh i i think he draws out like everything going on with uh dickinson's neurosis before she even gets to michael kane's office i moaned with pleasure at his touch isn't that what every man wants i don't know is it don't start that stuff with me don't you think you'd feel better if you snapped at Mike instead of me? Think about where your anger is going. No, I, yeah, that's what De Palma's really good at. Because like, even when it feels like maybe his film is meandering or something like that, it's everything is being extrapolated very visually in a very like dense way that's just entertaining and... Uh, I mean, that's a that opening is a real tone setter. You know what you're in for for the you know the rest of this movie. You know, you know, throw your uh, throw the kids out of the room. <laughs> I was gonna say throw, throw them out. Of the room. <laughs> I was gonna say throw them out the window. I was like, throw your ex- expect kids. I don't know. Where throw to go your here. kids and expectations out the window. If you're expecting any children, throw your wife out the window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah don't watch this with uh, anyone pregnant. You don't want them becoming perverts. <laughs> Uh, so right after that very disaffected sex scene, you see her check in with her son, played by uh, Keith Gordon, and the inventions that he's getting up to, which I just love. Yeah, I love the long setup to just get to the joke of playing with your Peter. It's so fucking good. And then also, like, I don't know, I think it's pretty apparent, like, the Freudian sort of nature of his relationship. But it's just like, I don't know, it's adds like the fact that he's like a young kid and gets involved with that relationship with Nancy Allen just is another like beautiful layer of sleaze poured on top of this. I I love how erotically charged those scenes are. Yeah. Like, is he going to, 
is it is it gonna <laughs> is have he gonna sex? get is he gonna get <laughs> statutory raped <laughs> by Nancy Allen? That's what you're rooting for in those scenes. Yeah, I, mean. <laughs> I, I mean, and no, I, I mean, I I think that's to a point. That's also just teasing out any depravity that could be found in the quote unquote joy of this film. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so she visits her psychologist, played by Michael Caine. And uh, in this very on-the-nose scene, if you've seen the film before, you know, he checks himself in the mirror several times while she's describing, you know, uh, sexual proclivities and, you know, kind of makes a half pass at him. And he talks about how he's, you know, married and dedicated psychologist. But uh, throughout this film, Michael Caine checking himself in the mirror, a great, you know, uh, visual hint to what's to come, but also just in terms of giving depth to his character, I don't know, to use outdated psychoanalytic uh, stuff like that mirror, you know, development stage, whatever, uh, clearly in some sort of stunted development that he's repressing himself as a kind of like conservative psychologist who is, you know, in the beginning of the film, uh, supposedly denying patients sex change operations, uh, but in turn... I guess we just get to the spoiler right yeah. away because that's yeah. how you talk about this movie. In turn, uh, he is actually the one uh, killing these people as, you know, uh, th- this woman, the blonde wigged woman uh, is, of course, Michael Caine. And whether you consider Michael Caine's character a, you know, in the classical sense, cross-dresser or a trans person, you know, it's up to interpretation. The, f- the language that this film uses, I think, is purposefully... Uh, like harmful toward him in the sense of like the psycho uh, psychiatric community, the police and every other system around him is denying uh, what like Michael Caine's character actually is. No, definitely. And I, I mean, Caine acts this so well, you see that uncertainty right from the jump. It just seems like everything he, he's saying is just so, so stilted and, you know, stylized toward the points. Like I, this guy kind of just seems like a fake person. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fake friend turns out to be a fake friend he is if i've ever seen a fake friend in a movie it's my (laughs) so after she visits uh the psychologist uh she goes to the museum and we have one of the greatest set pieces in the de palma filmography Mm -hmm. it starts with cutting between uh you know her point of view her gaze at these paintings and then her and then it uh you know puts in some other shots of where she's looking because now she's alternating her gaze between the paintings and the couples that are at this museum. You see one guy getting a little fresh with his girlfriend, Mm -hmm. putting his hand on her butt in front of the museum security guard. Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) No need to flex here, pal. We're just here to enjoy art. Probably the most objectionable part of this movie. (laughs) Is when those two faceless characters uh, (laughs) do a little PDA at the museum. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but then eventually her gaze lands on a man who approaches her, sits next to her, and they have a little, you know, exchange of facial gestures, facial expressions. And uh, after a while, there's a game of lost and returned with her glove. And that turns into a game of following who's following who. The camera, you know, from its tracking shot starts to get looser and looser as it goes, kind of bending from one side to another like you're on a boat at some points, you know? Yeah. Uh, all climaxing with her getting into the cab with him and just starting right away to fucking hook up with him in the cab in one of the strangest scenes ever. <laughs> yeah, that's cruise. That's what we call cruising. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, the way that rhythm rhythmically like builds up is, you know, quite baffling to me. And uh, I mean, because each parts of this scene like uh, are great in their own right, kind of like this people watching rhythm that he, uh, you know, starts, and then you have this tracking shot, and like this tracking shot is so disorientating to me. Just you know, let alone the tilts, but like just the idea of running through a museum is like kind of yeah. insane, you know, because it's like you see all these, you know, all these like art pieces that are just catching a glimpse of, and it's just it's so much more overwhelming than like I don't know, running through a regular hall. And I love how, like, sparse it is with, like, specific details. I mean, like, up until, like, this is so early in the movie. All you know is Angie Dickinson 
unsatisfied, horny as hell, like has a family. And then like along with that, uh, like another like little thing that I very much so enjoy is that the man that she hooks up with, his eyes are obscured with these big fucking glasses. <laughs> I was thinking about that. <laughs> like just not to get too vulgar, but yeah. uh, you know, the idea of fingering someone with sunglasses on pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, as you said, like every set piece, every scene even has this kind of voyeuristic approach. I mean, it's a fucking De Palma movie, but mm-hmm. uh, he really brings out all the tools in his kit for this one. Like when they get into the car and you have the cab driver then adjusting his mirror multiple times, including <laughs> one where you just have this completely sideways shot, I guess, from the POV of Angie Dickinson laying on her side in the back of the cab. And the camera, though, tilts along with the mirror mm. that tilts. And it's just wonderful because it completely warps, you know, the perspective of point of view and everything like that. But it's also during this incredibly erotically charged scene where it's just like it's hard to keep track of all the moving parts. I I, I don't know. This film's more insane the more I talk about it. No, I mean, he's going out of his way to do a lot of the voyeuristic uh, camera angles in this movie. I feel like there's a lot of times where, you know, he will you know, have something happen specifically so he can mess with these things. Definitely, I mean, you know, not to be sound like Roger Ebert here, but this is definitely an exercise in style more yeah. than anything else. <laughs> like, but that's a good thing. Uh, so after they fuck in his apartment, she's getting ready to go and she sees a little bad news that she may have just uh, uh, contracted a venereal disease. Welcome to the world of... <laughs> cruising (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess so and it's so terrible because this is where the uh first you know very clear parallel to psycho comes where the ostensible protagonist is killed off you know in this one even earlier than in psycho uh and the last like thoughts running through her head before she's murdered are that she probably has a venereal disease and that she just left her fucking wedding ring, her very clearly expensive ass wedding ring uh, in the apartment of the stranger. She just fucked, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she goes up to get it. She gets killed by who we later learn is Michael Caine in a scene that, as I said earlier, very fetishistically frames uh, the gloved hand holding the knife and the light catching or uh, the reflection caught from the light on the blade uh, in just such a pitch perfect, extremely Italian moment of, of super violence, you know, because when that blade is cutting open skin, it is, it's, it's rough. It's rough. It's cutting. It's cutting. <laughs> I, I mean, I, this is one of my favorite horror scenes of all time on mm-hmm. rewatch. Cause just of how money he gets this kind of, uh, you know, his own stylistics that are going on here. And like, like I said, another rhythmic buildup that just sells something that like, um, I don't know, other filmmakers could display as just kind of innocuous or something like, I don't know. It's kind of like, it almost seems like the characters kind of suspend in time as like, there's the conflict with like the knife being grabbed away from Michael Caine, the Nancy Allen. And it's just um, all the details that are focused on just really, I mean, I think there are a lot of really like great like tonal shifts that happen there and like allow him to change like what he's doing formally, like even like leading up to the kill where it's like Angie Dickinson's like, oh, fuck, where are my panties? And then just the the music that plays when she's like writing the sweet sort of little love note before she Mm -hmm. finds out about the venereal disease and you get that shocking like turn. There's it. It's such a beautiful intensity to each time it like takes a, a big turn and shift. And I mean, especially when we see Nancy Allen catch Kane like in the mirror there. Oh God. So beautifully, perfectly staged where Nancy Allen is introduced here as a prostitute walking out of the building with her John who catches a glimpse of the violence, but doesn't, you know, see the full picture. And at that point we, the audience even think that Michael Kane, or, you know, at that point we think the killer uh, has gotten away, but really just hiding against the wall so that this John can't see them. <laughs> and then Nancy Allen sees everything, sees off the, the mirror in the top corner of the elevator. And then she kind of becomes the protagonist of the movie at that point, because that's also now 
the point of audience identification because it's been this movie watching this lady you know you can't even say that the audience is identifying with this lady you're just kind of watching her and then she gets killed and now you're partially in the shoes of the person who had to witness all the carnage and you know you're kind of split between her you see Michael Caine from here on. You see the lieutenant of the police played wonderfully by Dennis Franz <laughs> as like a classic gum-chewing cop. You know, one of the busiest mouths in this movie. <laughs> You're not a psycho. You do know some, though, don't you, Doc? Yes, of course. I do some work at Bellevue. Hey, uh, could she have met one of these nuts at your office? I mean, some kind of weirdo she could have turned on that might have followed her? No, I mean, uh, to go back to the kill on the elevator scene, I think what's great about that is that how it builds it up with um, her, like, trying to go down, and then mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I need to go back up, so she's trying to go back up, and then a family comes in, and, like, the daughter's looking at her weird, and it's, even before there's knives being slashed or anything like that, it builds the horror of just, like, elevators, basically, yeah. and the anxiety of being an elevator, being so beholden to where you're going in this, you know fucking metal box and it's used to a great effect and you know the kill as you know doors closing stuff like that and i mean yeah that zoom as the door closed to the mirror is one of the best you know money shots of all time oh my god completely so dennis franz uh you know does some light investigation and then uh, keith gordon realizes he has to get involved we see right away how involved he is as he's listening in on some of the police investigations with one of his gadgets that he's invented and then we see him innovate another gadget you know deconstructing what goes into a shot kind of you have this you know timing of how people uh, or how quickly people leave a building and he has to get the right angle the lighting has to be right really you know uh, you think about that uh you got mm-hmm. to position it so that the street light catches these people coming out of the building as well uh you know this is an old cheap super 8 camera that he's hiding in a bike it's going to be hard <laughs> to expose those properly this kid's a genius <laughs> yeah it's also i mean it's very very easy pop criticism coming in here but like that's a like a very much a de palma stand-in as oh, of course obsessive over like the techniques of a camera and like yeah. yeah getting correct angles you know being obsessive over the camera and so much so that you know he's you know he's he doesn't want to have sex with Nancy Allen he's focused on the grind yeah exactly he's mm-hmm. on his grind Nancy Allen <laughs> she's trying to grind up on it and it's like, <laughs> technically that is her grind that's her profession True. she is a professional <laughs> yeah i can't blame hey no one's no one's blamed here it's i just... think this movie is about being on your grind it's about the uh, the, <laughs> the rise hustle rinse repeat mentality <laughs> true kane was on his grind and it just it went sour Sure. Stay you, on your you hustle. If he if he took a little time off work, you know, thought about himself a little bit, a little we'll vacation, avoided, <laughs> little vacation retreat, little Airbnb vacation, <laughs> <laughs> hit the beach with the Tim Ferriss book or something like a uh, someone who was on Joe Rogan. <laughs> Read that. So to get back to more typical De Palma, uh, the the first uh, use of split screen here, we see uh, Nancy Allen getting ready to go. Uh, meet another John and then on the other side of the screen we see uh, Michael Caine uh, watching a television program uh, where they're interviewing this trans woman who had served I guess in the military for a long time and uh, they're both watching the same TV program and the way that De Palma is moving the camera and getting all the screens in frame and their heads in frame and you know the mirrors in Caine's office just seemingly multiplying every scene like it's that first scene you see the one little mirror on his desk and then every time you go back in that office there's a new mirror to play with no the split screen here is great because it's like i don't know you you hear the word split screen right we got two different things going on but these this (laughs) thing like overlaps so well and you get like information overlap and it's like you said it's like overwhelming and it's you know kind of almost confusing at points but it's I mean, it's just it's goddamn impressive. Well, there's a point where there's three phone calls going on, exactly. right? Where yeah. Nancy Allen has two phones going, uh, you know, one for the plug, you know, yada, yeah. yada, yada. Uh, and Michael Caine is also listening to this voicemail that we'll later realize he left for himself. And it's like just three phone lines going and the TV program going twice, too. Yeah. Uh, just a, a minefield of audio to navigate through. <laughs> but, you know, when you, when you dissect it, you find some juicy bits of it. Hi, Norma. I'm sorry about yesterday. Yes, I know. I was a bad girl. Tonight, 
No, I really can't. Um, Norma, hold on just a minute. I'm talking to my mother. Max, when do you need the money? No, I don't want to sell um, anything. So then we get another set Hold piece, it, Nancy yes. Allen on the subway being followed, uh, seemingly impossibly being followed, you know, and it turns out, yeah, there was one cop following her as well as Michael Caine following her yeah. and Keith Gordon following her. And so, so many of these shots, you look at it after that set piece and you realize, oh, th these could have been point of view shots from multiple characters, mm -hmm. you know, or they could have just been objective shots. You never know with De Palma. True, and that, that scene is just like, just like the city is like a nightmare landscape where, yeah. like, you know, no one's safe. A little problematic, yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, can't I mean, deny that. But, but I think, again, that, like, plays into the elements of, like, how sleazy and, like, transgressive it can be. Like, just the interaction that she has with, like, the black teens where they're, like, she just bumps up against them and then they're like really brutal with like why break it when we can fuck it first when they're talking about yeah. her, like beating her up and yeah. it's just like oh it's uh it's down and dirty with it and then how that's contrasted because you know De Palma's De Palma's knows knows what people are thinking you know you see the black cop on the on the you know the subway and that seems just so strange as you know she asks for help you know realizes she's not going to get it so she doesn't really try and then they just kind of just stare at each yeah. other uncomfortably. The, the dialogue yeah. continues muted for like double the time that they <laughs> talked you know like they talk for a few lines and then they just fucking give each other glances and it's the suspense is building and you don't even know why like it shouldn't yeah. be building and then by the end of the set piece uh you realize why no yeah i mean i like the very hitchcockian of him of course but like, I love how De Palma will just, you know, pierce mund mundane moments with just, you know, yeah, some violence. Uh, so then Dennis Franz gets uh, Nancy Allen to do some extra extrajudicial uh, police work for him, basically. Yeah. Dennis Franz, what a piece of shit in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everything worked out in the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keith Gordon and Nancy Allen they have a little rear window type situation planned out where Keith Gordon's going to be looking through binoculars as Nancy Allen goes into Michael Caine's office to try to steal the appointment book because they still haven't figured out that the killer is Michael Caine. So they're trying to find this blonde woman's information. It is that classic rear window feeling, you know, when <laughs> like uh, Keith Gordon sees Michael Caine in drag and he realizes what's going on and he can't help her because the rain is pouring down and thundering and even him screaming against the window isn't going to do anything, you know, mm -hmm. and also the scene of Nancy Allen seducing Michael Caine before. Oh boy, what a <laughs> what a weird scene. <laughs> like yeah, with everything, you know, at that point just such a gut-wrenching scene to watch yeah. oh yeah and she like again they bring back like the rape fantasy stuff that happens in the beginning yeah oh yeah i mean that also comes back literally oh at yeah the later yeah, yeah, at yeah. the end yeah so, i mean I, I mean just before we get into that i love kane just basically saying twice like well two different women being like you you know you'd have sex with me right yes but no <laughs> <laughs> i'm a doctor <laughs> When you're on that grind, you don't True. have time for pussy. <laughs> no, no, yeah. That's see, he he was thinking in the right way, but then he he slipped. He slipped. Yeah, he slipped. He definitely Nancy slipped. Nancy Allen, she was about her grind. She was on the phone talking stocks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she's got a painting that's gonna be worth a million dollars. Yeah, dude, she listened <laughs> to Jay Z's advice. <laughs> uh, so as this film wraps up, yeah, Dennis Franz and the uh female cop that looks a lot like Michael Caine in drag, uh just perfectly for this movie, of course. Uh, you know, sneak up and are able to shoot Michael Caine right before she's right before he in drag. So right before she stabs Nancy Allen, uh, like so many great Italian horror movies end with the blade just hovering above the woman's face about to kill her. Yeah. And then the person is shot. But then De Palma adds like four plot points after that. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> So you have the scene of Nancy Allen and uh, Keith Gordon toward the end at that like cafe. And it's very strange because it's using deep focus and like she's talking about trans surgery and you just like see these old ladies. Oh, like, that's so disgusted. great. The bourgeois women just like offended in the yeah. back. That's yeah. just like a nice. I, I don't know. I like that. Like even when De Palma's wrapping things up and taking it to a close, he's still firing on all cylinders. And, and you know, maybe maybe to go to bat for De Palma here, you know, not to. To be, I I feel like most horror movies at the time wouldn't you know go out of its way to, 
I don't know, explain like transsexualism mm-hmm. and like have a positive example and like the person on TV. So it's, of course it's not perfect, but it, he is, I don't know, representation, right? And I mean, <laughs> like they are being very cavalier in talking about it. Yeah. But I think like the fact that the bourgeois woman yeah. is the butt of the joke is something, I mean, obviously again, it doesn't like, it's not perfect. Well, but... Yeah. It's not perfect because he gets to have it both ways. Cause he, He's still being kind of, you know, digging the knife in a little bit. Yeah, totally. And uh, I, guess, I guess that's part of the fun. That's why we yeah. you know, we like it. I mean, what I said about obsession is that like every time it deviates from vertigo, it's just twisting the knife, making uh, that template become so much darker and harsher and that film itself. And this film works the same way with every twist it takes beyond Psycho, you know. So they wrap up their little lunch there. Keith Gordon uh, says, you want to come over? (laughs) So strange. Uh, As we mentioned before, we're not rooting for anything to happen there. Uh, (laughs) I thought thought that was okay. I thought you could publicly be like, you know, I hope a 15-year-old. He's 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 like old enough and they looks. didn't say his age so I'll no just, yeah uh, i think he's ready to go let's, let's <laughs> move past this uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then we go to a scene where michael kane is in the hospital in this like dark blue setting and this nurse walks up to him to check on him and he rises up and chokes her out and it is terrifying and we pan up and like pull up with the camera and see all these layers upon layers of men gawking and laughing and cheering him on, you know, other people of this hospital. And it's like, is that us? Yeah. That, that really put this over the top for me. I, yeah, that is, I really enjoyed that sequence. And like, of course, yeah, this movie ends like three times or whatever, but like each time it seems like he is, he is trying something new. You know, he's like, like I said, it's a stylistic grab bag. And like, I feel like that, that was a great... I love how that scene looked, too. Like you said, like the dark blues and, yeah. you know, just the depravity of it. I mean, and it totally could end there, floating up and seeing yeah. how... But nope, get another scene. Michael Caine breaking in uh, to the house where Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon are hanging. Uh, Dad's out of town. You see the, just see the white shoes creeping in. Uh, left him at the bathroom. And then we're in that scene from the beginning again. But instead of Angie Dickinson... It is Nancy Allen now, you know, and we've uh, go, gone down one generation with it. You know, instead of the dad, it's Keith uh, Keith Gordon in the other room. And then it ends the same way that scene does, where she is taken by an intruder. And this time it's Michael Caine. And then she wakes up and it's a dream. And yeah. it's a pretty scary one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just like showing that even if everything's okay again, and this is actually a, a really good way for horror movies like this to end. Uh, I can't think of another example off Carrie. the top of my head. Yes. Carrie literally his own movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, even if everything is okay at the end, it's not okay because these characters have been traumatized by the last 95 minutes and they're going to have to remember that for the rest of their lives. You know, mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah. I, I, when I saw that, it, it's all good. But I was like, it's funny that he just did the carry ending again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's great. I I feel like I've seen it in like other slashers too, Mm -hmm. though, where it's like the killer comes back for one more after it's okay, but then the person wakes up, you know? No, definitely. I I can't think of what it is. Viewers, listeners, write in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm giving this one four and a half. I was going to give it four, but I'm bumping it up. I think I've said all I need to about this, though. Uh, What about you, Malcolm? Any final thoughts? I'm going to go four and a half bullets. You know, maybe, hey, maybe for this October episode, maybe pull out a knife, four and a half knives. But um, no, this is, this is, I always forget that Brian De Palma is a great horror director, Mm -hmm. you know, amongst other things. Cause, um, you know, I've been kind of going into like maybe his like femme fatale snake eyes era as of lately. And that's great too. But it's like, dang, like these horror movies just have a real charge to them just, you know, with this uh, De Palma image sequencing that I... You know, I really do love it. Hey, man, maybe make another horror movie. He has, you know, you're trying to make that Weinstein movie. That's that might be a little hard to get, you know, money for. But horror movies, (laughs) always nice and cheap. You can always get money for a horror movie. (laughs) What do you think, JT? Um, fuck. You boys talked me into it. Four and a half bullets. What can I say? You don't have to succumb no, to peer pressure. This is this fucking good. We talk like talking about it like hypes me up. Like we we get in the zone here, and it's just like, damn, this was that good. And it's just, I don't know, it's something that seems so simple because there are a lot of, like, killer set pieces, like, presented one uh, next to the other. 
but it, he's doing so much more there with like the psycho riff as well. Just I don't know. He's firing on all cylinders here, and it's a really fun uh, formal exercise. And like sloppy, dirty, gritty. <laughs> you're there. I mean, yeah. Also, structurally, this movie's pretty inventive. Like it, and I think that's also something you could say about New York Ripper too. So, don't turn your channel. Be right back on extended clip. What was that stuff you sprayed on her? It was a kind of mace I made at home. It's a pretty simple compound of sodium. Look, save the uh, Mr. Wizard lecture. I wouldn't know uh, sodium from Adam. It sure worked. It's temporary blindness. Only lasts about ten seconds. Saved my life. I know. I wish it saved moms. And we're back on extended clip. It's everyone's favorite segment, Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, you watch anything noteworthy this week, Malcolm? Yeah, you know, this this past week, I actually, I watched a lot more movies than I have. Um, you know, I've been busy with stuff and just kind of watching the movies for the pod, but I even watched like three movies in one day. I was pretty hyped on that. I hadn't done that in a while. Um, all horror movies, you know, I've been, I've been scaring myself. I think I... You know, watching these movies, I feel like I want to kill someone. You know, that's that's a uh, that's the impression I'll, I get. Maybe it'd be cool to stalk someone down on the street and kill them. But uh, I don't want. I don't, don't want to do that. I don't want to. You know, that's why we have movies for. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the one of the movies I watched was <laughs> um, Splatter Naked Blood by uh, Hisayasu Sato, and uh, this this Sato got great great director. I watched Celluloid Dreams by him as well. And all of his movies seem to be around like under 80 minutes. You know, Cellular Dreams was 60. This was a tight 76. And uh, one of the more baffling movies I've seen in a while where you have a, a, a mother-son, you know, both budding scientists with the, the mother trying to, you know, do research on uh, birth control. The son trying to make a, a special painkiller. And he slips this painkiller to the test subjects of his mom. And, you know, they react in different ways. Basically, they feel nothing and they respond to that differently. One of them responds by uh, eating themselves, you know, cutting off their nipples and labia, chowing down on that. And um, <laughs> one of them just kind of cuts themselves to death, you know, kind of like they're primping themselves at the mirror, very, you know, vain, you know, picking out eyebrow hairs. And that just turns into lot of tearing and then the other one is just not affected at all but she she can't sleep so she has this vr cactus thing that she attaches to every night that simulates sleep and the sun is just following them around you know seeing them die and, and it's just a just a very strange movie very perverse you know a lot of a lot of nudity and whatnot but also i don't know there's like kind of like a like a soft tone to it and it's like a lot of it is like about um the you know the son's dead dad and he reflects on that kind of throughout the thing and it just the results are uh you know i don't it's kind of confusing i don't know what to make of it but it's it's powerful image making nonetheless and uh that's that's someone i could just see me marathoning his films because a they're short and two you know they have this like shot on video kind of uh kind of gritty feel to them that is just uh you know i eat up so be on the lookout for that nice what about you jt well, I feel like I've also uh, been indulging a little bit in Malcolm's murderous desires recently <laughs> with my viewing <laughs> habits. I mean, I one thing I, d I watched uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn this week, but I didn't want the haters to accuse me of copying you, Eddie, so I didn't follow <laughs> up and watch <laughs> a Dragon Inn. But I'm going to talk about Gothic by Ken Russell, which I watched, and that's about uh, Mary Shelley, the night... The, the supposed the fabled night where she came up with Frankenstein um, and it's uh, Lord Byron all these old English fucks like getting together just doing opium and like it's a scary like uh, night a lot of rain a lot of thunder lightning um, and I was really surprised because I thought this would be more informed by like Frankenstein itself but with what Russell is getting at here is that like in this opium, fused state there's like uh it, it's more of like a straight up horror movie where shelly's mary shelly's sister starts acting like crazy um but it's like a little loose whether it's like an opium dream and like that is playing into it and then what it's getting at with like the frankenstein creation stuff because you don't really see any of that or her like um ultimately coming up with a story until like a little bit at the end 
but it's playing on like Shelley's like miscarriage and uh, really creepy, some fucked up stuff, real perverse too. A lot of horny sex stuff. I mean, that's like you you're going to see a movie by Ken Russell. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's going to get horny with it. Um, uh, and it was a great time. What about you, Eddie? Well, as you alluded to, I watched both King Who's Dragon Inn and Sai Ming Lang's Goodbye Dragon Inn. Uh, I'll talk about the latter a little bit. You know, it's a incredible film on like the the haunting effects of time, both like movie time and the real time, which Sai oscillates between the two and he kind of slyly seems to collapse the rules of both versions of time here. You know, it's an 80 minute movie about a screening of a 110 minute movie that seems to use duration kind of in the abstract just as much as it does in the take itself as long take cinema often does. You know, you got like the longest piss anyone's ever taken in the history of mankind. Uh, you got the cavernous and like slimy depths of the back rooms and hallways of this theater, uh, the decaying decadence of the theater itself. And, you know, it's just this uh, profoundly sad sense that we're, we're never going back, folks. I guess he was right. We're, we're not going back. It's really sad. Like I, <laughs> I, I got, I got very moved by this in a way that other Sai Ming Lang films haven't moved me. And like, I love his other films so much, but this one has really sank in over the last couple of days. Like it struck a chord in its romanticism of loss and like. I feel that way towards cinema as a whole. You know, you know me. I'm always remembering the classics, even if it's 20 years ago. Yeah. It's like I'm. It's such a reactionary tendency, and I guess that is what makes it so difficult to have these 35 millimeter <laughs> glasses that I'm looking at old movies through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a proper metaphor or whatnot, but. Uh, <laughs> It's the battle between like the reactionary nature of nostalgia and the purity of things that we once knew that will never be real again, you know, mm -hmm. and how the seemingly replacement progressive replacements for that for this scenario is just the decay of the theater. And the death of these actors who appeared in Dragon Inn eventually and the haunting of uh, this theater by the ghosts that have inhabited it in the past and also the humor here is amazing. The The theatrical, like, sitcom humor of this is amazing. It's like sitting next to someone when there's hundreds of open seats, just <laughs> plopping yourself right mm -hmm. next to a guy. Hilarious. I would love to do that to someone someday and just see if I get my ass kicked. <laughs> or if they try to take me in the bathroom and fuck me. You know? Yeah. Never I was going to say <laughs> some more cruising. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, doubling the theater as a place to experience and mourn for the loss of cinema and, like, culture and time is also, like, it's, it's equally as important uh, as the theater as a cruising hotspot, you know? <laughs> Sounds, it's a, it's a pretty yeah. cold hotspot, though. Not too many people cruising in this one. <laughs> I remember something like that happened to me once. I was I was seeing a screening of New York, New York at the Egyptian, and I kind of sat, you know, a place where I could just be alone. It was, you know, half empty theater, and you know, this woman just comes and sits right next to me. And of course, you know, nothing happens. I'm not. This this ain't the movies. But uh, <laughs> I was just like, why? What's going on here? Yeah. Like I'm just like, hmm. And there's also the scene early on when there's a couple chewing their food so loudly and you just see the character that we're right next to, the Japanese tourist, like look over and then look back. And it's just like that anxiety during, you know, communal screenings that's created out of bad behavior. I hate these things in real life. But here it was like profoundly moving just like yeah. to feel those feelings again and to see them represented through such like a durational uh, based film. I don't know. It's it's a masterpiece. And uh, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen, frankly. That would be funny to intercut that scene from the scene from Scary Movie where oh, yeah. she's talking <laughs> really loud at the movies <laughs> and then oh. they just cut back and to... he's just looking <laughs> i mean i thought about that a few times during dragon and how you could just edit in like any other like different movie just like them watching grown-ups too yeah oh, hey. God, with the actor from dragon in watching it and crying <laughs> <laughs> i think i think i think it's up to us to make goodbye happy madison when that oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the tears will be flowing uh, we'll be right back on extended clip to talk about Lucio Fulci's The New York Order. 
And we're back on Extended Clip talking about the New York Ripper. Um, you know, I've only seen a couple of Fulci films, but they've really made an impact on me. This guy is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, what is the New York Ripper about? Well, a, a, a police lieutenant and a college psychologist are on the hunt for a serial killer who preys on beautiful women and quacks like a duck. <laughs> I was definitely working on that. I was like, I wonder if I can do the duck voice. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Uh, so, you know, you get a handful of classic gloved hand point of view set pieces and a bit of a deeper study into one character, uh, Faye, who assumes something of a final girl role, uh, as well as an older freaky couple uh, integral to the plot who make audio sex tapes or dirty podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, the intro of this movie, the dog finding the disembodied hand, just Fulci starting out with a nice joke. That's, yeah. Uh, that's, you know... Uh, Punctuated is punctuated. Punctuated with a you know a nice tight zoom to the guy's eyes, like what? <laughs> uh, uh, and like uh, just the way, like I kind of like dressed to kill, but I'd say maybe even more so. This movie is very loose in its structure. And oh yeah, you're talking about like um, I guess uh, the detective psychoanalyst combo. That's kind of in you know Faye and Peter. Which you don't get until like forty five minutes in. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those are the two people we return to, but it's it's just literally just uh, sex and violence for forty <laughs> minutes. Just Fulci kind of swarming around this city of just sexually, you know, depraved people who will do anything to bust a nut. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. This is this is like a this is like corniness as like um, danger. Like, yeah, yeah. So you know, a, a dangerous city full of horny people who. And, will do anything and there's so much hatred in the horniness too like with the cop lieutenant williams when he's like seeing that one prostitute because uh the duck killer uses her as like a pawn in this so it's like he cares about her some but he's just like he he calls her like a dumb bitch like multiple (laughs) times it's just like there's such a hatred of women present in his character that it's uh well there's a hatred of just everyone that's on screen like from like the cops to the psychoanalyst, you know, the psychoanalyst is just portrayed, even though he turns out to be right as the movie progresses, just a, you know, money grubbing, like, I'm not going to do this unless I'm... He's also you know, just a goof, too. He just yeah. plays chess against a computer. Yeah, yeah exactly. It just, just doesn't seem like a, a guy you would, you know, get important work done with. And frankly, he gets a pretty sleazy moment toward the end that we'll get to, but... Uh, mm-hmm. For the first 45 minutes of this movie, yeah, Fulci just uses like the Staten Island Ferry, a pool hall, a subway ride, the movie theater, and a Times Square fuck show as like sandboxes to flex his formal muscles with like camera movement, composition, set design, you know, use of score and sound design alongside the very nasty practical gore. And even more than Dress to Kill uh, or really any film we've talked about in a while, it's like just moving from set piece to set piece kind of that's the whole structure of it is these 10 to 15 minute chunks of just brilliance yeah no no character way in you know no character who plays the way in for the audience you're just one of these sleazy new york motherfuckers walking around because it's (laughs) it's it's so funny because like uh as the movie progresses right and you know we we have like a uh, a suspect it's just like there's just random people doing bad things, yeah. you know, aside from, you know, the murderous plot. Just even if that, you know, even if the duck face guy isn't going to stab you, you should still watch your back. There's some still some shady things going on down here that Fulci's, you know, taking so much pleasure in shooting. And there's things just like so much unlike anything I've ever seen before, like the the pool hall in particular, just like foot fucking a woman like just playing with that's who my goodness yeah talk about cruising like jesus christ getting into some nasty situations in this one that go much beyond like uh, blurring the lines of consent just completely abolishing them in like one of the more disgusting scenes and like really hard to watch scenes in this film that is otherwise so gory this is one where the most you know action you see in this scene is a toe grabbing at some underwear kind of but yeah. like it's still the nastiest well, scene in the film probably yeah. 
Señora, aspetti un momento. Vorrei offrirle una birra, mentre il mio amico continua la passeggiata. True, it's nasty too, because it's also like you could see that Fulci's kind of having the character oscillate between kind of liking it too. And then the way it's the way it concludes too, it's it's not even that these guys are really doing it because they want to have sex with her. They pull They're the table back. Around. They pull the table back and embarrass her to yeah. expose it and she runs away. And it's just such a, a nasty bull. And I love I love how Fulci uh, gets a nice dick bulge. Oh, yeah. oh my <laughs> god. Punishing her for being horny. Yeah. Just exactly. Staring at that moose knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, eyes are up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you may criticize Fulci for sometimes introducing a character by the breast or the bottom, but, you know, equal treatment. He also introduces <laughs> men by their bulges. Yeah. <laughs> there's also, like, there's so much character in this film, too. Even, like, all of the side characters who just pop up once or twice are hilarious to me. Like the old Italian landlady who finds the body of the first person or no, she identifies the body, I guess from the hand that we see in the beginning, just like complaining about how she was like an obnoxious young woman or whatever. And it's clearly this old Italian lady who has probably complained to the police a ton. And they're so over her at this point already. (laughs) And then there's the guy they work with at the morgue, I guess, uh, who handles all the dead bodies and is like wearing headphones the whole time and just jamming out (laughs) to his Walkman while he's dissecting dead bodies. No, that, I mean, that's, that's, what's also great too. The, the guy, uh, what's, what's that room called? The The morgue, the morgue, morgue? yeah, the morgue guy is just, he takes so much, pleasure in his job too he, yeah. he looks at the curve of the cuts in the woman it's like oh you really cut this one up and the police i mean the police officer too i mean um does a lot of stuff that just seems kind of mean-spirited and you know unproductive like i, I go back to um the woman who was getting you know you know foot fucked who eventually gets killed and uh you know she has a husband and the husband's explained like yeah we had a loose thing you know she could kind of sleep around and the cops like obviously showing much disdain for this and, yeah like, even plays the sex tape that you know she made before she gets murdered and it kind of like smirks at him like huh yeah this is yeah. what you let her doing well she was free to live and she was free to die as and, the cop says <laughs> which is so harsh <laughs> and earlier also we get that close-up on the drawer when uh her husband receives one of the sex tapes and you just see he has just like 250 oh. micro cassettes of her fucking other guys like or of her just like listening to a Times square fuck show and getting off herself you know yeah another great scene too when they go to the new york fuck show and amazing you just yeah you see which is i i guess i'd never thought of this before i saw this movie but just people you know you think of porno theaters but just watching live sex you know it's kind of it's kind of funny i I feel like i'd rather watch porn and uh, it's so sad too because the the woman performer gets killed and it's like I think the most sympathetic shot in this whole film is her leaving the stage and the tracking shot of following her back to the dressing room where it's like the lighting of on stage versus backstage uh, just completely turning off any kind of flair and just showing this as, oh, this is a person who's doing her job and her job sucks because she just has to get fucked in front of a bunch of people and put up with all these fucking Times Square weirdos and now... You know, she makes a remark to one of her coworkers, and then she gets in the back room and slashed, and it's like kind of fucking sad, you know. Yeah. And that that room that she's in, oh, beautifully green, and whenever the door opens, that like sliver of red coming in to cover her body uh, when the killer leaves and leaves the door open, just beautiful by Fulci here. True, and I feel like Fulci, he's ahead of the curve. Maybe, hey, I don't know. I don't know my porn history that well, but like the woman getting off to porn genre here, he takes a lot of pleasure in a shooting that and, yeah uh, it's just it's just fun to see have a, a it's great to see a filmmaker have fun while he's making mo- you know people are like i like knives out because it seemed like they had a fun time while making it it's like i bet fulci was having a good time when he was watching that i agree i think this is the knives out of 1982 <laughs> yeah but I, I think the way he approaches all of these kills, all these set pieces is so wonderful because he makes these patterns, you know, he has these like long takes and slow zooms over the course of like five minutes as the beautiful score is yeah. like always building up. And then he just punctuates it with like slam zooms and quick cuts on disgusting practical gore. I mean, come on, the nipple getting cut off and this Ugh. is just like. Ugh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's rough. I mean, the the you know sex performer. She gets stabbed in the pussy with a wine bottle. It's, yeah, it's it's brutal. 
it's just I I love that brutality contrasted with a man doing a duck voice over the phone. It's yeah. like something that I feel like it just saying it aloud obviously sounds very ridiculous, but there's like a level of horror to doing that like childlike simplicity there with these repulsive acts. Yeah, just matching this kind of like absurd approach and just, you know, with, you know, misogynistic killing techniques is just a, it's very, ca- he's taken a very cavalier attitude, this yeah. killer. That's all I'll say. Eventually it becomes clear that there's multiple killers. The duck voice is what Faye's boyfriend does with his daughter, who is handicapped. You know, she she is missing one arm. And he seems to be, like, taking out what he can't give to her on other women, which is obviously very, like, rooted in psychology. That's the reason they reach out to the psychologist, and he plays such a major part in this. But psychologically probably makes no sense uh in terms of movie psychology ooh, pitch perfect you know yeah i mean i love i love how fulci sets this up too because you just have you know about like an hour and 15 minutes of just new york as this swarm of dirty people people who are too sexually permissive and it's getting them killed and uh you know people who are uh enacting on that sexual permissivity you know kind of being uh rapey or you know literal rapes yeah. and stuff like that and, you, you know, you see this relationship between Faye and Peter, a more conventional one, and he strips that one back, too. He's like, no, the horror's just as potent here in this relationship as, like, all this, this swarm of sexuality that's, like, making New York City uh, too dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's an atmospheric horror movie that is as atmospheric as it is disgusting in its moments of gore, you know? And it's like, I guess there was some dumbass fucking... Twitter discussion about jump scares and atmospheric horror or whatever the other day. I don't give a shit about any of that, but it's like, just get both, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you get an artistic director? Yeah, I mean, that's fucking 101. That's like what all good horror is, you know? But I don't know. This movie, I oh, I love it. It's just like <laughs> the, the nipple slicing makes fucking house that Jack built uh, titty cutting uh, look tame, you know? <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, it is just how, like, kind of, uh, it's like a spiteful movie, but, like, not even towards anything in particular. It's just, it loves, just takes so much pleasure in its, like, depraved moments. And each kill kind of gets escalated and escalated to something, you know, nastier. And just, uh, Fulci's just a, just a, like you said, a kid playing in the sandbox. Just yeah. putting his boogers in the sand, making a <laughs> special, you know, sand castle. It's playfully spiteful. Yeah, it's exactly, like, yes. It has so much hate, but, like, it's such a pleasure to, like, mm-hmm. it, I don't, feel like the hatred and like dark nature is directed towards anyone yeah. or anything it's just the atmosphere of the movie the world is a vampire <laughs> it's like dressed to kill in the sense where i wouldn't even say the film is hateful the film presents a view of the world that is hateful yeah and the world is out to get women you know true and it's like it's a very hard world and new york city is a disgusting place exactly yeah yeah, I mean, I guess when I say hateful, you know, it's more, yeah, tone rather than. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't. Th- I mean, I, I can't say anything personal about Lucio Fulci. I don't know. You know, he could be uh, someone who would, would admit to hating women. I, I don't fucking. Well, know. I'm, I'm not even saying like hating women. It's just like kind of like I. I feel like maybe it's just New York City as a whole, more just how yeah. he's depicting. It. I don't. Yeah, I don't feel like. I yeah. When I say that, I don't. I'm, Fulci's Fulci's woke, dude. We were talking <laughs> about socialism the other day, so I know. I know he's chill about that stuff. that's true Fulci was telling me that like no matter what Jacobin posts you know it's not like increasing anything material it's just more discourse I was like yeah damn. you're right whoa you're right (laughs) takes aren't takes aren't material takes are just discourse if anyone says something like that to you just be like oh yeah Hmm. interesting it's a crazy world Just quote tweeting every Jacobin article with, huh. <laughs> oh, I also wanted to get to that last note of sleaze. Uh, after uh, the the final girl, Faye, has been saved, you know, in a, in a very similar matter to the way that Nancy Allen is in Dress to Kill, you know, uh, her... Uh, 
Sorry about that. Yeah, geez. Uh, Malcolm Moles broke my uh, my very used bookshelf that contains two DVDs. <laughs> yeah, I got I move kind of powerfully, kind of like like with hubris. So I, I, just, need to... I, I worry, you know, when I see the DVDs for Fever Pitch and four film favorites, Girls Night Collection, I, I don't want them to break, you know. <laughs> That's, true. That's what the cases are for. That's true. Anyway. Sorry to interrupt. It's okay. I mean, I completely lost my fucking train of thought, but... <laughs> Uh, you're talking about the the gunshot yeah, kill yeah. scene. So, thank you. Uh, first of all, the bullet going through the cheeks of the killer. What beautiful gore. Yeah. <laughs> Just that one shot. That's all you need, man. Uh, forget all the rest of the gore. Well, don't actually forget it because it's also very cool. <laughs> but that shot left such an impression on me. But then in the car ride you know you get that classic explanation after uh where the psychologist traces back his steps and the the cop traces back his steps and so does Faye, you know and then the psychologist just like has his arm around her while she's crying yeah. in like such a creepy greasy italian way <laughs> and then the, like this movie just ends on a very sad note with the disabled also the just the involvement of the disabled daughter is like very strange and just kind of yeah. adds to like like an, another tone of downerness that this movie has that I, I, I just find interesting. It kind of reminds me of like how uh, the children are used in uh, that Samuel Fuller movie. Uh, fuck. Um, oh, the one where it winds out that uh, it's the prostitute and the pedophile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, the Naked Kiss? The Naked yes, Kiss. Yes. Yeah, the Naked It reminds me of the use of children in The Naked Kiss and like it's, I'm, I don't know, like that ending is like, it, it almost, it's like kind of sad, but it's also just like, I don't with Fulci just shooting stuff with like, you know, such richness, shooting, you know, women fingering themselves at, you know, a porno house, such fervor. It's like, I can't help but think like this is, he kind of, not a joke ending, but it's just like, it's so downer that it's, I don't know, I kind of register it as just like him adding just another cherry on top of like depravity more exactly. than anything else. <laughs> uh, bullets? Four bullets. <laughs> uh, four bullets for me as well. It's a fucked up world that we live in. And I really hate that the cities do this to women. Um, my heart goes out to them. Yeah, shout out to the women. Yeah, I think this is a uh, another uh, another segment of The Sixth Sense. Everyone's favorite segment. Because I'm also giving this one four bullets. Uh, we're all in agreement here. And let's check the email. Can't wait. You can always reach out to us on email. Extended clip podcast at gmail.com. No emails this week. God damn. It. I even did a tweet about it. That's I guess kind of that's an L. That's like a big L, but I, whatever. I guess people don't really, you know, care what we have to say. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like that. That's just, you know, that's just the way it is. Remember these moments when we're on top. <laughs> yeah, when we finally close the mailbag. Exactly. Oh God, we should. We should just have a final mailbag one of these days. <laughs> just like final get your questions segment. in now, because we're we're gonna stop this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the Patreon this week, we're gonna be talking about Suspiria, uh, the Dario Argento film. And on the Patreon from last week that you can check out right now, what did what did we do last week? Visitor Q. Ooh, and we talked about the most effed up nasty shit we've ever seen we're on our nasty tip right now and if you thought these movies are nasty visitor to q a whole different breed of nasty oh yeah i mean look you, you see fulci slicing off some nipples what about what about uh producing some milk out of them yeah. <laughs> you know fulci's you know thinking like how would you kill a woman Mike's like would you fuck your dad <laughs> the answer is yes <laughs> next week we're rounding out our uh october of Horror. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> little, ah. so, little something we made up, you know, little horror movies in October. That's what I call it. You know, some people call it Shocktober, uh, Hooptober. Uh, I, I call it the October of Horror. Hooptober, I, I I mean, I'll respect the Toby, but I just like, why'd they give that to him? I don't know. Yeah. He's kind of one strange. of the gods, but it's like he's one of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't, I don't know. Horror strange. is not a monotheistic genre. True. You have multiple gods. <laughs> True, yeah. We're going to take a look at some of those gods next week. I can't wait. Yeah, we're going to do a triple feature, getting metatextual with our horror this week. We're going to talk about Roger Watkins's Last House on Dead End Street, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness for a special... Halloween 
triple feature. I'm pissing my pants already. Yeah, and we're giving you a, a treat, not a trick. So uh, knowing us, we're trickster gods. So be, be happy about that. <laughs> I might I might have to slip in a trick or two. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, watch out. It's, it's in my nature. <laughs> like the scorpion and the frog said, it's in my nature. You should like uh, on the Halloween episode, just huge bass boost for like 10 minutes or something like that. <laughs> A little bit of trick. I did a trick on the Godard episode. I put it out of order, and people were like, "What is this?" <laughs> so over their heads, dude. They're so over their heads. Imagine if they could think like us. Maybe so they condescending. <laughs> no, I, I know. Yeah, no, imagine. Though. Imagine. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm just hey, No, I'm joking around. I suck. I'm, I'm not smart. You shouldn't listen to me because I'm dumb. Is that what you want me to say? Uh, <laughs> Our Twitter is at extended clip sixty nine. Do you guys want to plug any internet stuff? Uh, nah. Fuck it this week. See you next week. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't good.